everyone. So our reading today comes from Luke 11, verses 29 to 54, and it's on page 844 in your blue book. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign of an Ninevite, so also will be the son of man to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she has come from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now for something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they represent the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden, or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, so that those who come to it may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will just be as full of light as when, it, as when a lamp shines its light on you. And when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of a cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside of inside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rule, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people will walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the, and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hidden those who were entering, hindered those who, have, who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. morning. It's 
So Christmas was only last week. This year we were trying to teach Evie something of what Christmas was all about. She's our two-and-a-half-year-old. By the end of it, I think we made a little bit of progress. Uh, she could at least tell us that at Christmas time we're celebrating baby Jesus' birthday and she was very excited to sing a lot of jingle bells. Uh, but, you know, sweet baby Jesus, the one that you see in nativity scenes, meek and mild, the one that you sing about, uh, in Christmas carols, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, sweet little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes and he's such an angel, he doesn't even cry, does he, in this carol? One day I hope we'll be able to teach Evie that that little baby grows up. And this morning we see a well and truly grown up Christ of God in Luke chapter 11 who is anything but meek and mild, if you're listening to the reading that Wynne gave us. And yeah, I know it's a bit heavy for a New Year's Day. It's a lot to swallow. But Jesus doesn't hold back from saying some pretty hard things. And I thought it would do us some good to hear this word from Luke 11 uh, as we start off this year. And hopefully it will help to snap us out of that, you know, that sleepy feeling you get in that week after Christmas when you had a bit too much to eat. It's warm like it has been. Uh, I'm hoping that this word from Jesus would help to wake us up from that drowsy, foggy state. The take-home from today, I think, is that from those who have been given much, much more will be asked. And we, I think, are among those who have been given a lot. So let me uh, lead us in prayer as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, we ask that, I guess as always, as we come to your Word, that you would speak to us whether it's a word of rebuke or it's a warning or it's an encouragement and a blessing, we ask that uh, your spirit would do his work in us as we come to your word and that you'd help us not just to listen but to obey. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the stage is set for us by the time we reach uh, Luke chapter 11. There's already been 10 chapters of Jesus bursting onto the scene doing amazing things, uh, healing people and driving out demons from the possessed. He's been teaching about God with an authority that no one's ever done before. And people don't really know what to do with him. Uh, when we find him today, there's a ton of people flocking to see him, uh, performing, hopefully to see him do a miracle perhaps. There's desperate people who are in need. Uh, there's his disciples who've been with him since the beginning. And there's also... Uh, what you see there, a bunch of religious authorities who they don't really know what to do with Jesus, who's just this firecracker that's blowing up right in front of them. And where we're picking up the story from is a moment of conflict where Jesus is ripping large chunks out of the mob who've come out to see him, particularly those who've come just for a show as well as the religious establishment of the day, uh, the Pharisees and the experts in the law. And as you would have heard in the Bible reading, he tells off both these groups of people. No holds barred. He is brutal and honest as he rips into them. And as you hear Jesus' words today, it's kind of like sitting in a classroom where, I don't know if you've been there, someone's done something wrong, they've been caught out by the teacher, and the teacher is dressing them down in front of the hearing of the whole class. Not only does the culprit get an earful, but the whole class gets to hear what the teacher will not stand the teacher explains to everybody what the standards are and, and tears shreds off this poor kid who's done the wrong thing. 
So he's gracious and patient and kind as Jesus is. And he is those things. He is gracious and patient and kind. There are still, there's still something which he seems to have no time for in our passage today. What Jesus can't stand is when people, when people who have privilege and opportunity and who frankly should know better fail to respond to him in faith. Not because they haven't seen or heard but because there's something dark and unhealthy in their hearts that's stopping them. You see it there in verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. You see that in verse 29, the crowds are getting much bigger. People are presumably asking Jesus for, for a miracle. Perhaps he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And as he does, they're saying, well, if we're going to listen to you, if we're going to obey you, then give us some proof that you are worth listening to, that you are legit. Give us a sign that you are from God and that we should listen to what you've got to say. And Jesus says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For, uh, verse 30, As Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be assigned to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will also stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. I think the reason why Jesus refuses the crowd here is that they've had more than enough. They don't need to see another sign. We're 11 chapters in, for goodness sake. The reason they don't believe isn't because Jesus hasn't done miracles. He sees right through them and says, No, the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah, which I think is a reference to that Old Testament story about the prophet Jonah who spends three days in the belly, in that watery tomb in the belly of a fish and then at the end of it comes back to the land of the living. I think this is an early flag in the sand that Jesus is saying, when I rise from the dead, then that resurrection will be the sign that you should have listened to what I was talking about. And his criticism of the people of his day was that so many of them refused to believe what was right there in front of their nose. Sometimes you think, if only I was there 2,000 years ago and and I could see and hear what Jesus did and, and said for myself, if I could see him do a miracle, maybe that would make believing in him easier. But apparently not. See, the problem isn't with the evidence. The problem's with us. Some people will always find an excuse not to believe, even when it's inexcusable. You see how Jesus talks about his own generation, verse 31, 32? The Queen of the South will rise on Judgment Day and condemn this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment and condemn this generation. Uh, This queen that you read about uh, only appears in this tiny bit of the Old Testament a non-Israelite royal at the time of King Solomon, who apparently hears about the wisdom that God gave to Israel's king, and she travels across the world to hear what God has to say, the wisdom that God's given to Solomon. 
the men of Nineveh, who were pretty wicked by all accounts. God was going to wipe out the city. But they responded to the shortest sermon ever preached, I think. Jonah comes and his one-sentence sermon is, 40 more days and I will destroy Nineveh. Full stop. That was the only word from God that the men of Nineveh heard. And yet, they responded in faith and repentance and turned their lives around. And now, Jesus says, something greater than wise King Solomon is here. Someone greater than the prophet Jonah is here. The Son of Man in the flesh, the Son of God, the one who brings a slice of heaven wherever he goes, is here. And the crowd wants him to perform for them? Nah. It's not like Jesus is hiding the evidence of who he is either, is he? That's the point of the lamp analogy, I think, in verse 33. He isn't trying to hide his light. Verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. The light is obvious. The light is there. Your eye, though, might be the problem. The evidence is as bright as day, but verse 34, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. So perhaps their refusal to see what's right there in front of them tells you more about the condition of their eyes and their hearts than it does about anything there being a lack of evidence. As if they needed Jesus to perform more signs for them so they can believe. So if the thing that you see with is full of darkness... You've got no chance. Your perspective is clouded. You're not really, if you're not really receptive to believing in the first place, it doesn't matter what Jesus does for you. The game's lost even before you start. So Jesus urges them, verse 35, see to it that the light within you is not darkness. Otherwise, no amount of evidence is going to make any difference to you. In fact, the more evidence you get exposed to, the worse it is for you. Because you're guilty of ignoring more and more and more of what you really shouldn't have missed in the first place. It's about how receptive you are to Jesus in the first place. To those who have been given much, much more will be expected. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He finds himself, as you keep reading, dining with a bunch of Pharisees and experts in the law. The Pharisees were a particular sect within Judaism, a really strict one by all accounts. They prided themselves on being absolute sticklers for keeping the law that was passed on to them by their fathers. The Jewish law that was handed down to Moses and, and that bunch. And the Pharisees were probably the most serious Jews you could get. One of them invites Jesus over for a meal. These guys were so good at keeping rules, they made up a whole bunch of other ones which they also kept to the letter. And they had rules for how to eat, how to dress, how to do just about everything, including some ritual for cleansing that you're supposed to do before you eat, every time you eat, which Jesus ignores. Look at verse 37. Uh, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised that when he noticed Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This isn't a hygiene thing, this is a religious ceremony thing. A bit of a 
embarrassing social faux pas. You know, if you get invited to the house of a Pharisee, and no, Jesus has a point. Jesus has, Jesus has a real point to make. Jesus can't stand external righteousness. People who look like they're on the outside, they're holy. If on the inside, they're actually bankrupt and wicked. And so look at verse 39. He hasn't washed his hands. And he says, The Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without even knowing it. Now, that last one about unmarked graves is interesting. In the Jewish ceremonial law, if someone gets in contact with a dead body or a grave, they're accounted as being unclean for about a week, uh, ceremonially unclean, at the end of which they had to offer a small sacrifice to God at the temple to be ritually clean again. And this sort of being unclean is kind of unavoidable from time to time because you may have a family member or a friend pass away, uh, and so it's just something which would happen. But I guess the law was a symbolic way of saying that death is unnatural and and contrary to God's good purposes for, for us and for our world. To call the Pharisees unmarked graves, though, is really quite a rebuke. You're meant to mark where a grave is, uh, not just for the practical reasons, but also because if someone touches the grave accidentally, they'd be unclean without even knowing it if it was unmarked. And Jesus is saying that's what a Pharisee is. If you're in contact with a Pharisee and their obsession with external righteousness, that defiles you without you even knowing it. The problem with external righteousness is that way too often... It just becomes for show. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want people who just do religion. He wants genuine love. He wants genuine justice. Which is what he pulls them up for in verse 41 and 42. Then one of the teachers of the law foolishly drags attention to himself in verse 45. Uh, One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Which just makes Jesus shift the rebuke to him. So, genius. And you, says Jesus. (laughs) They're no better. These uh, experts in the law, they're as externally good-looking as anyone, but internally they're bankrupt. And Jesus can't stand an external righteousness. It really just hides an internal rot. Their obsession with the laws doesn't help anyone. Look at verse 46. You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. You yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Down to verse 52. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. 
In fact, it seems that they make it harder for people to engage properly with God. Because first they make it so that they have to navigate this whole maze of laws to get even close. He accuses them in verse 47, these experts in the law, of building tombs for the prophets. The prophets which their ancestors killed. And it's true, the Jews, the Jews don't have a good track record of receiving God's prophets well. It's a tough job being a prophet to the Jewish people because people didn't often want to, he- want to hear what God had to say. That didn't end well for prophets carrying messages. But you'd think normally that building a tomb for a prophet, for someone who's deceased, is a way of showing honour to them. What's wrong with building a tomb? Only here it's, I think, a bit ironic that while the teachers of the law are doing this outward thing to honour these prophets, they're still not actually listening to what the prophet was saying. And all their lawmaking, they're, they're figuratively, I think, still burying the prophets. They're burying what the prophets had to say under a wall of man-made rules, making it harder for people to come and to encounter what God's revealed. So they're no better than their ancestors. These Pharisees, these experts in the law, were so close to the revealed will of God. They technically knew the law back to front. They handled it every day. They taught other people it. And all that did was make them even more culpable for not doing what it says. Having hard hearts that played the game called religion, like keeping up appearances that probably were outwardly very impressive, but in the end, on the inside, didn't reflect anything of what God was like at all. And it's such a shame. It's such a waste to have God's word fall on these sort of hearts. God can't stand this sort of hypocrisy. And I know it's been a hard word so far, maybe even this morning while we've been looking at this passage, you've heard the the Spirit of God pointing out things in your life which you may need to address. Areas where you need to be a person of faith and not a skeptic and not a hypocrite. Please don't ignore what God is pointing out to you. Don't be that person who God's given chances and opportunities to, to be so close to his word and what is revealed and yet miss out because you love living in darkness. Why don't you start 2017 trying to be open and receptive to what God is showing you? The warning is there for all of us though. We've been given so much Look around the room today. Some of us, I suspect, have been exposed to God's word for decades. And you know him. You know what he said. You've heard all about Jesus. And even if some of you have only come recently to faith, or you're not quite there yet, you've, at least this morning, joined into a community that's had a long tradition of priding themselves on knowing God's word. And the danger that's always there for established communities of God like ours is the pull towards an external religion. The trappings of looking busy rather than genuine discipleship. Where all the activity isn't fueled by, you know, duty or obligation. We want want activity to be fueled by love, not what other people think of us. Generosity and justice and these things that we, we know matter to God 
That's what needs to fuel us. Whenever people run into us, whether that's at Penno Life or you know, our neighbours and friends who just run into us from time to time, how awful would it be for us to be unmarked graves, people who hinder others from coming to God because their contact with us actually drives them further away? Now, I want us to be people who are full of light, people who are overflowing with the love of God. We have an opportunity, I think, this year to do some amazing things as a church community. God's put it on our hearts here at Pennant Hills Baptist Church uh, to work towards that 2020 vision document that we put together very prayerfully over the last couple of years. If you haven't seen it, you should be able to grab a copy of it from the foyer. It paints a picture of where we believe God is leading us to. And you've said, as we're drawing up this, this vision document, that you don't want to be complacent, that we want to be a community that's you know, fruitful and healthy and growing. We are one year now into this five-year vision document. Last year was all about laying the groundwork and the foundation for um, a lot of the projects that, God willing, will really start to take off this year. And so this year may be a year where God is challenging you to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. May God help us this year to be the people who he's called us to be. People of faith who reflect him in our world. Amen. Thanks, Johnny. I don't know about you, but I hear a passage like that and a message like that and I see myself everywhere. Um, the dangers, you know, particularly when you're in a professional ministry or a Christian role, the dangers of having an external veneer while inside's rotten. Uh, you know, the idea of buying a house but someone's done up but it's all falling down, that's a terrible, terrible thing and am I like that? Uh, are we like that? Are we such a nice middle class northwestern suburbs of Sydney, materialistic, educationalistic church that we veneer all that over and say we love Jesus. It's a real challenge. And I guess this, the great hope that I have is the gospel because all those woes I can see reflected against me but the great hope is the gospel and that we're forgiven in Jesus if we live by faith. And the Spirit does restore and renew. We're going to sing two songs in closing. The first is a thank you. Thank you, Jesus. As we commit ourselves to living in you and living for the kingdom this year and putting off those things, thank you, Jesus, that your blood has washed away my sins. Let's stand and sing together. Yeah.